so I was going to watch Captain Marvel last night, but I couldn't. So I watched uh, Fighting With My Family, starring Florence Pugh as real-life female wrestler Paige. And and how did that work out? Um, it was pretty heartwarming, yeah. Uh, it was a very incredibly formulaic sports movie, um, British sports movie, so you can picture what that will be like. And it... Like Bend It Like Beckham? Um, I haven't watched that in a while, but yeah, probably more formulaic, more kid-friendly than that movie, I think, is. Um, wow. Like, the highs are higher than that. Higher than Bennett Beckett? Yes. It's kind of more euphoric and... I don't know, it's real, because it obviously really happened, but, um... Yeah, it sort of feels like the fantasy of success. Yeah. Director Stephen Merchant... That's right. ...came through with another tearjerker, another euphoric... What else has he done? I thought this was his debut. Uh, nah, he did that film Cemetery Junction that no one saw. I've like never met a person that's seen that film. Okay, Felicity Jones breakthrough role. Yeah. Um, I remember her on the poster and like some boys with chins. Yep. Um, they, look, they look like a Smiths cover band on the cover. They look like they're playing Glastonbury this year. <laughs> yes, I heard a funny story where they said um, during the audition process they were, they were trying to pick Ricky Gervais and Steve Merchant. You know, they're trying to choose the right gang, the right group of kids to play them. And they were looking out the window and they saw the three kids who eventually went, who were, who were starred in the film, like walking down the street and like nudging each other and pushing each other around. And then they later found out that the kids did that on purpose because they knew they were watching them. <laughs> they purposely had a yeah. nudge. They were like ringers. Uh-huh. Three nudge that's ringers. That's right. Well, that's how cinema's born, I think. Like that's no different to like Peter Sellers showing up in character and stuff yeah is it? yeah no it worked if they're shrewd enough to pull off a shenanigan then the the, the true friends then they can play a shenanigan <laughs> yeah exactly uh commentary track for cemetery junction coming soon on <laughs> judge movie premium <laughs> um we're gonna go through the entire ricky gervais oeuvre uh i don't know about that i think i, I probably From... if it yeah you need to to subscribe for that. I need to be paid for that kind of content. The Invention of Lying, uh, the one where he's a war correspondent or something. Is it called like Correspondence? And it's like him and Eric Banner as an odd couple. Wow, I, don't, I haven't even heard of that one. I'm pretty sure it's like a Netflix ISIS comedy or something like that. Oh, cool. Super tasteful. Um, and then there's the new one. Yep. Um, can I offend you? Does it offend you yet? <laughs> I have a does it offend you yet t-shirt. Is it just Richard Gervais, <laughs> like, with a cigar hanging out of his mouth and his middle fingers out? I'm afraid not. Um, I mean, you were referring to the band, right? Yeah, okay. yeah. And, and Ricky Gervais, yes. Being offensive. Being offensive. Referring to things from ten years ago, right? It's pretty, pretty cutting-edge yeah. comedy. <laughs> What was it from 10 years ago that he referred to? I don't know. Uh, just uh, in his recent Netflix um, series, he, he was joking about trans people and saying, I identify as a chimp. And what? that's like a very, very old joke. You know, like the, I identify as an yeah. attack helicopter. That's a <laughs> really old joke. None of these upcoming Disney films even like 
flicker the twinge of interest in me. Like that in Avengers trailer that's dropped mm-hmm. it just literally could have that was like looking at a blank screen for three mm-hmm. minutes. Um and the Aladdin trailer, everyone's like, oh, it's a bit more exciting because it's got the songs that you know mm-hmm. and uh, he's not blue. But to me, it's just like a soulless kind of shot-for-shot version of the original from the looks of the trailer. Yes. So they have many modes and formulas of remaking what they've already done and re-shopping them, whereas I guess this one is doing an Alad- uh, what the Beauty and the Beast did, which is pretty much shot-for-shot recreation. Yeah, what? So, do you, are you saying like the other mode is the kind of Christopher Robin slash Maleficent kind of? We're gonna tell you the story you don't yes. know. Yes. Well, yeah, I think even Maleficent is is slightly different from Christopher Robin, um, but yeah, they're doing similar things. They're kind of taking it, doing a slightly repositioning, but in a very cynical way rather than a creative way. I feel. Yeah, that's the thing. Like. With with Christopher Robin, uh, obviously best known for being the lost episode of Judge Movie, um, that film's biggest problem is that like the director thinks they're making like a completely different film to what's on the page, and so it kind of sucks the creativity out of it. They're good at making you forget the ones that are skeletons in the closet, you know. <laughs> yes, I would like to see Pan. Because I've seen the clip where Hugh Jackman sings Nirvana as Captain yes. Hook, and it's it's pretty bad. Yes, it does sound interesting. It's, I mean, it's, it can't be too many steps away from from uh, Moulin Rouge, right? Maybe they're onto something. Yeah, I was. I don't know if I was getting Moulin Rouge vibes from the. No, I just uh, mean like anachronistic pop but, songs as a period musical. Yeah, it was. Yeah, but with this kind of almost like Mad Max visuals, I yeah. felt. Um, so that was Warner Brothers because Disney doesn't okay. doesn't take risks like that, but they like to pretend they do. It was the two thousand and three one? Yeah, Warner Brothers take the risks. They never pay off, yeah. but they like they take those mm-hmm. risks. So what was that about? Cinderella? I've not seen, but it's got our gal in Lily James, friend of the show, <laughs> Lily James. Um, yeah. Adapted by Kenneth Branagh. Yeah, and he's now in the Disney machine because he's got Artemis Fowl dropping okay. this year. Well, he's been there for ages. Yeah, Cinderella, Thor. He's Because he's, he's got... He's doing the Artemis Fowl adaptation, which feels like a movie they should have made 15 years ago when I was mm-hmm. a kid. Um, well, they're waiting until you're old enough to be nostalgic for it. No, nah, I'm, not, I'm not old enough to care. Oh, okay. But may, maybe some other people are, but... Um, considering they got to fucking like Percy Jackson first. <laughs> That's true. I feel like Artemis Fowl was on the kind of Lemony Snick level, right? Yeah. Did you read much Artemis Fowl? I didn't, know. I never read it. Oh, they were good. Um, he's just a little dude. Uh, he wears a suit. He's like a nerdy 10-year-old with a suit. And he's like, let's steal the fairy gold. Sounds pretty good. And the Did fairies she... are like hard-boiled cops and stuff. It's pretty good. Oh, amazing. Yeah. Hard-boiled cops, you say? Yeah. Sort of drawing from the noir tradition, maybe. Yeah, it's that's the fun thing about it. It's like kind of takes those like noir conventions and really updates them and like makes them good for kids. Oh, cool. It's almost like a neo-noir, you know? Yes. 
a very ripe storytelling mode. Totally. One we haven't seen much of recently. That kind of died out after the 30s and 40s, right? Uh, not exactly, no. I'd say it, it, it kind of stayed alive. Um, and sort of, I, I do feel like it kind of died off recently, though. And maybe audiences aren't really receptive to it. I don't know. It's just not, not reading the, the, it's not the temperature of the vibe right now, I think. But You don't think no. so? What about, there is a film that's just come out today, as we record on Friday the 15th that's just dropped uh, in cinemas and on movie called Under Silver Lake. Yes. Now that's kind of like this LA mystery type vibe. You're right. That does have a very strong neo-noir vibe. But it's not being received that well, is it? No, it's certainly not being put up there with like, I don't know, Detour or Double Indemnity. Yeah, it's it's incredibly polarising. I think the people that like it, love it. But a lot of people are not not responding to it and I don't know yeah what does that say about neo-noir right now are you trying to take neo-noir to court right now (laughs) (laughs) maybe yeah Back to Judge Movie. Court is now in session. I'm Ben Flanagan, aka Judge Movie, and I'm joined as ever by Cinema Attorney. Alicia Izumi, hello. This movie, Under Silver Lake, and some of the other neo noir films that are seemingly everywhere at the moment and yet aren't really taking up much um, much of the conversation. Maybe they're dividing a lot of people, or maybe they're just being dis- outright dismissed by a lot of people. Uh huh. That's kind of how I feel. That's how I'm reading the the, the, the yeah the conversation right now. Things like uh, Destroyer were polarizing or just not really talked about. Out of Blue is coming soon, and it's kind of hard to tell if what that's going to be like because people are just not not really saying nice things about it. No, I, I, but also people are kind of acting like these movies are aggressively bad, right, and or, or ugly in some way. Mm-hmm. Which isn't inherently bad. And the, no. there's, there's been times when ugly movies have been loved. I think the noir films, when that when that genre first appeared, was a really ugly, hard-boiled, incredibly violent uh, tradition mm-hmm. at the time. So when was that? Um, we're talking the early 40s. Mm-hmm. The late 30s, early 40s. Um when a lot of the European directors had kind of made their way into the Hollywood system, uh, you started to see the influence of German expressionism uh, on put onto the kind of American crime genre, which created these kind of more expressive, very urbanised um, movies and stories mm-hmm. uh, with real focus on like women as these kind of enchantresses, um, and on dudes as these like down on their luck 
bottom of the barrel kind of people who had who were real people ripped from the tabloids yes um when trying to define noir people also talk about the sort of post world war ii anxieties where men are sort of emotionally psychologically shattered and the anxieties around women sort of stepping into non-traditional roles in the men's absence so that's kind of i think a key characteristic of uh the loosely defined early early noir but it's it's a it's a genre that had its high it's had its height um and then has slipped away as a kind of key mode of production but has always um the genre is so influential and so integral to the kind of american idea of cinema that um it always comes back especially in films that are being kind of reflexive about city life or about hollywood tradition in some way Mm mm-hmm yes yeah, so like films loosely influenced by noir uh, can be understood as neo-noir and they do always have this kind of sin literacy about them. Um, like Yeah, but it's a, it's a kind of nebulous genre, isn't it? It's um, Yeah, incredibly so. I think it does mean different things to different people. Um, if, even if you look at, um, I guess the 70s was when that term became popular um, and probably the two, two of the biggest neo-noir of that era are like Chinatown, uh, by Roman Polanski and Night Moves, the Arthur Penn film. Um, and they're both considered neo-noir because they follow this detective narrative, but they couldn't be more different in terms of the form. Uh, Chinatown is a very much in a, is pastiching classical Hollywood style. Mm-hmm. Um, and Night Moves is a lot more experimental and a lot more like European influenced. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're both neo-noir. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, you can find such a range of films falling under the neo-noir term, which kind of makes it exciting and also maybe frustrating to try and define it. But it's, uh, yeah, it's great. Yeah, I mean, if you if you look at um, Under Silver Lake as a total example of that, where that movie's employing so many different techniques, like uh, crazy kind of horror aspects and Dutch tilts and all this real genre stuff along with kind of Preminger style um, camera moves and and reliance on like staging and blocking and stuff. To me, I understood Under the Silver Lake as like a stoner noir. Um, Like you've got this kind of protagonist, he's probably high, kind of stumbling around, navigating, fitting in, not quite fitting in and like in this very sort of weird investigative structure. Um, sort of in the tradition of things like the Big Lebowski and um, Inherent Vice. Uh, that, that was kind of how I understood the movie. Yeah, it's it's weird how that stoner noir thing has now become a kind of default way to do these like stories about dudes like finding their way through the maze that uh-huh. is LA, right? Like it's it's almost like a cheap trick to rely on. Um, I... That it's like that's why they're so like, and I, th- and I think. Um, Silver Lake gets caught up quite a lot in stonery ideas of like uh, the Illuminati and like capitalism's destroyed pop culture and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I kind of like that about it. And yeah, I like a good stoner movie when they come around. Yeah, but this one is weirdly, it's weird because there is there is a, quite a lot of drug use in it. But um I don't know if it, yeah, I guess it's stonery. It, it does have a total stoner vibe. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. That's kind of... But it's also playing with so many different things at once that... 
that's just yeah. one thing that yeah. he's doing. Yeah, the right? reason I, I sort of bring up the stoner, com- the stoner noir is because noir does lend itself well to so many genre hybrids. You know, you've got sci-fi noir like Blade Runner or Strange Days, and you've got... Uh, um, my mind's blanking now when I try and come up with other genre hybrids, but, you know... Like the erotic noir ones, like Basic Instinct, The Last yes, Seduction. Yes, yeah, the erotic thriller, which had its massive boom in, like, the 90s, um, was, yeah, completely born from, from noir tropes. Yeah, I think I think when you're looking at film noir, you're kind of, uh, to go back to the literature, the, the detective novels from which a lot of them are f- born, as far as my understanding, is they're either the kind of detective... Uh, led stories like um, the the Raymond Chandler, you know, labyrinthine mysteries with loads of characters and the and the detectives kind of on the outside, working out the story, or they are the James M. Cain style that he wrote, like the Postman Always Rings Twice and and Double Indemnity, where it's about the criminal mm-hmm. themselves, but getting drawn mm-hmm. into the underworld and um, almost like a crime and punishment esque kind of paranoia and when am I going to get mm-hmm. discovered. And they're the two. It's yeah, you're either following the criminal or the uh-huh. detective, and and I think a neo noir like the player, uh, the Robert Altman film from '92, like um, I think that plays the two off against each other very well, where he is both criminal and investigating another thing that's going on, and that's set within the Hollywood mm-hmm. studio. To that end, I think maybe yes, Under Silver Lake is. In the very much in the Chandler mode, and these stoner, the stoner noirs are always seem to be about a person that's discovering a, you know, a system around them, some kind of underworld or or crime ring or yes, that kind of thing, right? Definitely, um, yes. Yeah, so I'm just thinking. I was I was just thinking about um, Chinatown, where he's un- uncovering that mystery, and he's just realizing how big and how deep deep it goes, and then you know. It's to the point where it's like, don't even worry about it anymore. You got to forget about it, because it's just, it's just too big. Um, and that, the, uh, yeah, I think playing with that kind of feeling of just, you know, is is really essential to art to noir or that 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 mode, as you say. Yeah, but I also think that that paranoiac element is separate to the paranoid conspiracy mm-hmm. thriller. Which we talked about before on the show, right? With like the Pacula yes. trilogy, um, the Angelica Bastian piece that was recently re- published about the thirty best neo noirs had the Parallax View as a mm-hmm. great neo noir, and I don't really, th- I feel like that's a slightly separate mm-hmm. realm. Um, whereas Clute is more clearly a mm-hmm. neo noir. I did feel like the parallax view didn't really fit. Um, I was surprised that was included, but in the in the same way that films like The Manchurian Candidate or Seconds, I don't think they would be neo noirs. I don't know. There is something about them. They definitely overlap with a lot of the similar stuff. The yes. mystery and the expressionist yeah. stuff and the paranoia and the anxiety and the playing with identity. Um, very true. But they are a little more. They are definitely more political, and they're looking at a wider context. Whereas, mm-hmm. I don't know. That's not necessarily something I'd associate with noir or neo noir so much. They're a bit more um, individual. Yeah, that it's that's it. It's the the ones that are kind of more satirical or um, critical of a 
modern yes. politics maybe are they the ones that seem to move I think away so, from yeah them? but as you say it's hard to define them as completely separate because we're in this kind of modernist what we're talking about is these kind of modernist films that are taken from a range of genres so it's hard to say that this is directly a noir because it's not out of a specific mode of production that's only doing yeah thing. it is something that's constructed in hindsight um so depending on where you're situating the movie you you'd understand it differently as a noir or not so to that end let's talk a bit more about under the silver lake so this movie uh which gives some context uh this is david robert mitchell who directed it follows um and he's being given some kind of blank check to uh make this uh la odyssey about a fairly repugnant um slacker character played by andrew garfield um <laughs> quite brilliantly i think this is another like great performance from the guy um and he uh, spies on his neighbour, played by Riley Keough. Um, she goes missing and he s- starts wide yes. search for her. And starts uncovers all detective. kinds of things. A lot of different things. Um, some of which mm-hmm. comes together. Most of it is kind of left of a shrug. Like, I don't think even Robert Mitchell's necessarily... Yes, it is more about the, uh, the journey than the than the than than where he really arrives at. Um, it's packed with a lot of I think pop 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 culture ephemera, and it almost has this uh, timeless quality to it because the, the references are so broad. I felt like you know there's video games, there's uh, REM tracks, there's sixties style pop bands and it's it's really all over the place in this way it kind of feels yeah timeless to me but i think that uh there's nothing really like current in the film which is quite weird it's been positioned as this like millennial Mm -hmm. odyssey and i i think it's very nostalgic Mm -hmm. even the clothes that andrew garfield wears are kind of what like a 90s slacker would wear i don't know i think there's something about the way la looks and that kind of scene does feel very current, and it's it's a it's a particularly millennial like nostalgia. I think like being in love with uh, you know uh, Nirvana does feel like something a millennial would be nostalgic for. Right. Yeah. So he's like, I guess his like biggest accomplishment in his entire life is just that he saw <laughs> Nirvana and he got Bean Cobain to. Um, to sign uh-huh. a poster of it, um, yeah, and it's kind of, that kind of makes him ageless as well. Because that, <clears throat> much as that's a millennial thing, that could be Absolutely. a Gen Xer yes. kind of thing as well. And it's it's kind of weird. Like you're like, how old is this guy? Is he? He's not a college guy. He's just this total yeah. bum. Um, and you follow him in as much as you're following the mystery, but as the mystery deepens and spreads off into lots of different directions he kind of reveals himself to be just such a unpleasant guy um and women continually like throw themselves at him and the the narrative keeps letting him get away with stuff that it makes it very hard to work out i felt like how much are we supposed to sympathize with him how much is um the director like on his side 
what is this film like really trying to say about mm-hmm. this character? Um, and I think it does come to it, it's critical, but it's also I don't know. Do you think it does enough? I don't know. Um, I think that does seem to be the main main issue with the film is like how much is it excusing this guy for being such a jerk? How much does it acknowledge what's bad about this guy? And I think it does give you. I think it does give you everything you need to understand that we we don't think he's good. We're just he's just our protagonist. Yeah. Yeah, I think the, like scenes like the um, when he shouts at a homeless man and says that he like hates homeless people. They just watch people mm-hmm. and they whatever they smell or whatever. And it's like that is clearly he's talking about himself there. And I think that's. Very yeah, obvious. I think also some of the violence he commits quite early on, like he, he he's not like a traditional yes. hero. He's not like really a, a good guy, but we're just so embedded in his his worldview that that that's why it maybe feels like it's yeah. more sympathetic than it is. I think especially as the 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 mist where the mystery heads towards. I'm not sure if that is. Um, tied to his character or his evolution in the same you know think of a film like Kiss Kiss Bang Bang um, where that is all it's like a closed Mm -hmm. loop where there's a lot of things in that but they all kind of come together and they're about the people that you follow and and The Big Lebowski is kind of the same right Um, I don't think that and obviously they're they're trying to achieve different things but I, I don't know that the it's it's kind of incoherent, like what this is actually reaching for. Um, I was prepared to kind of hate it. I heard sort of things that would be a sort of lazy pastiche of some David Lynch and and neo noir and all this stuff. But when I started watching, it, I did quite like it. I did like the the language of pop culture, the way it was being used, and I do enjoy a good stone noir. So I kind of liked that that lazy feeling. Um, I really. When it finished, though, my first impression was this isn't as funny or as fast or like as compellingly paced as Inherent Vice, which was probably the last Stone Noir that I really enjoyed. Um, it's operating on a much more sort of lackadaisical, slow pace. And Inherent Vice is pretty <laughs> slow paced. I find it far more tense than Under the Silver Lake. Yes, because all the stakes are set up a little bit better in that film. You kind of know who the antagonists are. Um, there aren't really antagonists in this, are there? There's just people that he encounters. And I wondered if that was part of it as well, because it seems like everyone that he comes into contact with um, is like tangentially related to him anyway. So it's like his big conspiracy is still like blinkered by his social milieu. So like he's only. He's already peripherally connected to the band and to that comic book um, writer. And do, do you get what I mean? So I was like, it was so easy for him to find the daughter of the okay, BNSA. Yes. I think, yeah, for me, I read that as a very kind of LA thing. Everybody knows everybody. But it's like he kind of is judging this whole social system and like looking at them in this kind mm-hmm. of weird way. He's looking at them as, um, I don't know, what, what, how is he looking at these people? He just looks at the women. Yes, I think that's it. I think the film, you know, 
is is taking on his male gaze as its gaze um and yes i did kind of struggle with that i felt like maybe the film it acknowledges it but it doesn't do anything with it it still just has its cake and eats it by saying we know that he's kind of a shitty dude who sees every single woman as a sexual object then the film doesn't really challenge that yeah totally it's just like it's 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 like saying it's there but then it's just gonna mm. do it anyway and it, i mean it sets it up the literally the very first thing you see in the film is him like ogling mm-hmm. some chicks um but what i don't yeah like as you say like what does it do with it the the kind of dream imagery in it isn't really connected to anything mm-hmm. Um, while they're like all compelling scenes because I think Mitchell's just a really as a storyteller he can just uh, he just knows where to yeah. put the camera no, I, think. I think it's exquisitely directed it feels so, really it just feels good <laughs> when you're watching it yeah yeah it's it's. but this this because uh, I've, I've watched it twice now and watching it earlier today I was just a I don't know. I, maybe it's because I knew where it was going and I knew it wasn't really mm-hmm. going anywhere. I just found it harder to see what else was okay. was in there. Um, I felt like the first time I got everything that there was, even if I had to kind of, you know, even if there was a lot of it, I kind of knew what it meant by everything and that. And I'm like, there's not actually anything deep. There's not anything under the Silver <laughs> Lake. <laughs> I think that's it, though, isn't it? I think the film also addresses that by saying, because it's got all this stuff about him finding and seeing all these secret codes and messages, but then it's also saying, I don't know if this is, is it a spoiler if I say what it's saying? No, so I think as long as you're not talking about plot elements. It's, yeah, it's I mean, it's kind of addressing this, like, it's, it's towing the line. Is he fucking crazy and seeing messages where they aren't, like a fucking stoner loser? Or is there really this massive conspiracy of, of codes there? So uh, maybe that's why there is nothing under the Silver Lake. But I guess this idea is an old one, and maybe that's part of why I, why I say that it's, it doesn't have um, much... Uh, it, it's an old Gen X kind of view, because these are the same ideas that you get in like a lot of like Thomas Pynchon and Don DeLillo books. And, and it, it, I don't think it's saying anything else, any, anything new. It's just like, oh, yeah, there's, there's systems. Ad, adverts uh, prey on se- on your sexual desires and stuff. Like, that's... It's, it's weirdly kind of trying to draw your attention to the fact that that is an old thing to say and an obvious thing to say. Like, all of his obsession with imagery, it's all in, like, magazines... Or or on telly, but not on a mm-hmm. phone or a computer. So it's it's throwback in that sense. Like he literally only uses a phone, his mobile phone, to literally mm-hmm. call people. Um. So it's it's like a film. I think a lot of people have said they assume that he wrote it as a college freshman, and he's just like updated it a little bit. And I kind of get where that's mm-hmm. coming from. Um. Even though I I I love like how much is packed into it. I just like. Yeah, it does just seem like a very young person's Uh movie. Um, Yes, so Richard Lawson's review of Under the Silver Lake for Vanity Fair talks about how it's a film by and for straight, youngish white men. And 
Oh, fuck. I can't remember what your point was. Um, but, like, yeah, you're kind of occupying this space of this guy. Um... Yeah, when it's, got, when it's like, oh, yeah, every woman here is uh, part of this being exploited. Um, and you're like, well, yeah, like, we know that. Why is this news to this mm-hmm. character? Why is the film interested in this guy? No, I don't know. It's something about, like, this tradition of... Okay, yeah, so you were saying it that um, this film feels like a young man's movie um, and it's very much from his perspective and maybe it's critiquing it a bit and maybe... I don't know. I guess there's maybe an impatience of another sort of male filmmaker, pop culture-obsessed navel-gazing. But I kind of was okay with spending another film, spending my time with like that with this film like yeah maybe there's there are times when there's too many of them but right now i felt like i could enjoy this one yeah i think there's yeah there's enough like verve in it and and maybe it's the fact that it's it's so skillfully done that you're like so why is it not and it's aware of the fact that it's being so leering but it's just gonna do it anyway and that i think is maybe what's a bit off-putting about yeah. it. That it's like, have your cake and eat it kind of thing, yeah. isn't it? Like, we can objectify all these people because we know that they're being objectified or something. Like, Yes. I mean, what do you think? What, what uh, Do you think this is... How do you think this is actually going to play with people? You talked before about the idea of it as, um, like, trying to force a cult out of a movie. Yes. Um... Because, I don't know, it, when I was watching it, it did feel like the kind of movie you watch as a very young teenager, like, in your bedroom very late at night. It's the kind of film you discover, and you it, you can connect with it in that way. Um, and it's, yeah, it's it's the kind of film you discover because it's not canonical, because it, it, it was sort of lukewarmly received, but then it's something you come to later that maybe has renewed interest. Um, yes. And it's so full of, like, references that that might lead you to discovering yes. other stuff. In the same way as a Lebowski mm-hmm. or something you, that you might watch as a mm-hmm. younger person. Um, and I think that's okay. I think that's the destiny for this movie. And that's that's kind of fine, you know, having that lukewarm reception maybe kind of helps it. Yes. And I think the... And I think that's fine, but I think there's a strange comparison in pretty much every review that I've read with the work of Richard Kelly, uh, a classic villain of the mm-hmm. podcast. Yeah, go back to our Donnie Darko mm-hmm. episode. Um, a lot of people are comparing this to Southland Tales, having uh, been a follow-up to a warmly received film that um, then annoyed people. Yes, can. yeah. I just find it a baffling uh, comparison, personally. I did get this kind of Southland Tales vibe from uh, Under the Silver Lake. Um, Just something about the way it uses LA and uses technology and pop culture to make these sort of crazy juxtapositions. I did get that kind of vibe. Um, I I don't know. Southland Tales is, is... Has got an even higher ambition than. So yes, like. it is more of an epic. It's a you know, a sci-fi, fantasy, 
exploration. Uh, it's it's what the can cut was 160 minutes. Um, it is it is reaching, you know, very widely, and it's uh, yeah. I do think it's surprising, given the reception of Under Silver Lake, that they haven't trimmed mm-hmm. it at all. Um, like I like I like the film, but I still feel like it sags towards the end. There's a couple of things they could have just taken out, or like maybe it's part of the film has a repetitive kind of quality mm-hmm. um, that you might almost compare to something like um, Inside mm-hmm. Lewin Davis, um, but it doesn't make that a real rhythm in the way the Coen mm-hmm. Brothers do. Um, did you did you find it too long? Um, I didn't mind it too much. I think I um, that. I recently watched Destroyer, and that felt very, very long. Um, so in comparison, Under the Silver Lake was all right. It was fine. Is it time to talk about Destroyer? <laughs> Maybe. Because that film is quite spinning, yes. I would say. So Destroyer is the recently released film starring Nicole Kidman as this very, very hardboard grizzled detective. Um, kind of part of... Unbelievably grizzled. <laughs> um Kind of part of this, yeah, this 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 mini wave. I feel like of neo noir that we're having right now, um, along with Out of Blue, and uh, I guess also looking to True Detective, and they they all have this thing in common where they're playing with neo noir aesthetics and tropes, but then being received with polarized responses. Um, yeah, and. Um... I feel like in the case of Destroyer, a big part of its um, problem is the marketing and the way that they half thought it might be a awards contender when this movie is not that at yeah. all. This is closer to like Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans. Okay, or yeah, isn't it? yeah. Tell me about it. What did you? Th- how did you feel about it? Uh, I was kind of impressed by its um, rigor, the the Nicole Kidman performance. That's almost like an Adam Sandler thing where you've got this like you know the whole everyone in this world is very normal except for one character in the who's who's taking you on this journey who is just like completely batshit it was like a Nicolas Cage okay and I find that you know Nicole is restrained but she's doing something quite different here that's just like this aggression I've really thought her performance is great um and I know it's slow I, I t- it, it does feel like a long film and I don't think that all of the emotional stuff necessarily pays off but when it's just doing like you know the big set piece in the middle is un- incredible um, some of the supporting performances are like really fun I think um, but it feels like a different kind of neo-noir what, what was your what was your take on it? I don't know when it started and in the, in the early parts it did feel deeply satisfying and I, I always come back to this with, like, I love noir and I love neo-noir. And I was thinking, why do I love it so much? Because it's just the fulfilment of familiar genre tropes, but rearranged slightly. <laughs> but there is something so satisfying and exciting about that, that when it's done right. And then even when it's, like, subverted, it's, it's quite fascinating. So with this, it was doing, like, the noir thing. It was doing the, the sort of detective drama thing, um, but with this very 
with, with Nicole Kidman in the traditionally sort of male role of the, the, the detective in deep pain. Um, but with her doing it, it did feel sort of fresh, but familiar and compelling. Well, I, I think this might be taking it off to a different direction, but um, those female cops are, there's a lot of them on TV mm-hmm. at the moment and not a lot in the movies. And I felt like this was a very, it felt strange thinking of it as being televisual. Uh-huh. And I wasn't sure what I meant in my mind when I, was, I kept thinking, this is just reminding me of TV. This feels like a TV show that's been condensed. And I like that. But I'm like, is that just me? I think it's a movie. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yes. Yes. It's weird that I say it's refreshing to have the female detective when it is something that's very familiar on TV. They've got this horribly, you know, horribly troubled past and the trauma, the way their trauma kind of is lived out through their, their lives and their detective work. Um, but it is still, yeah, interesting. Yeah. I kept going back to like Top of the Lake. Uh-huh. Um, particularly the first season with this kind of, yeah, like, as you say, the character that lives out their trauma through through what's happening in the story. Um, and I feel like Destroyer kind of goes to some ridiculous places, but it felt in control yes, of it. Yes, I did, like, enjoy the twists um, and kind of how it went and kind of like the ending. But as it just went on, I did feel kind of frustrated that, okay, we have one interesting fascinatingly fascinating female character in pain but then all the other female characters are just fucking blonde young abused women and i feel like this is such a pattern you have one great female character and then the other women are just just victims like uh, it, it reminded me a lot of uh, three billboards where you've got this great Frances mcdormand character but then all the other women are either stupid but they're all attractive usually blonde and yeah, I don't like the portrayal of teenage girls and these kind of angsty things. Yeah, it's often the same kind of thing. I think on on sharp objects, um, I've cut, I've her her name fails me. Uh, she's going to be in Little Women anyway. She's really good in sharp objects, but because she she's got an extra element to that mm-hmm. kind of character that you see all the time. Yeah, I think the daughter. That's what I'm saying. The daughter subplot just wasn't satisfying yeah, for me. Yeah, it, it really. Yeah, I don't know if it's because I knew it was written by men, but it just felt incredibly familiar, but not cutting deep enough in terms of a mother-daughter relationship. It like lost me a little bit more. As I, I came to a point where I was just enjoying the atmosphere more than actually like really following the plot as well. That might that might be me, but. I, it really reminds me of Michael Mann in that way because there always comes a time in Michael Mann films where I'm just like, I feel like I'm just watching like an industrial <laughs> film rather than like actually really following yes. the characters. Yes, that's a sort of another connection that, that Under the Silver Lake and Destroyer have is they're both these kind of LA mood pieces but in very different parts of LA. The physicality of it felt real in that when you see her run up a hill, she's then winded or like whenever she's had a fight, you then see her, like, actually having to deal with, like, the kind of adrenaline rush mm-hmm. or whatever. And, and that felt so much more visceral than a lot of these movies where people are literally able to just, like, carry on and yeah. keep going. I, I want to see Out of Blue because um, I just read an interview with Carol Morley, the director, and she's literally just talking about, like, astronomy and, like, the stars and stuff. I don't know what this movie's about, but I'm like... They just asked her something like do you like 
detectives and she was like well when i look up at the stars and i think about this thing i'm like that just sounds so batshit as an approach that i really want to i guess that one could be leaning more into the uh sort of existential elements of the 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 detective psyche of noir the first season of true detective tried to get to that where it had this like metaphysical underpinning and at the end it was like they, the characters were literally like, there is a fight between light and darkness and which side are you on? Which is just so hammy, but that show is, is ridiculous That's anyway. Cool. Yes, I feel like with with noir, a lot of this stuff is subtext, including like the depiction of crime and sex because of you know the kind of codes and restrictions that were uh, put on filmmaking at that time. But with neo-noir and relaxed um, relaxed kind of codes, they could bring this stuff to the surface in terms of text, like in terms of you could see the violence and the sex and it became far more explicit. And so with these neo-noirs, they're kind of bringing the existential anxieties out in terms of literally discussing the metaphysical stuff. I'm just trying to think of some of the other like modern neo-noirs. Um... Because I think it has a strong showing in the in the seventies and then again in the in the nineties, mm-hmm. um, where you've got like your Lebowski's, the player, and uh, Bound, or the Wachowskis. So even yeah. even like the Matrix has a lot of noir, um, mm-hmm. especially in its in its earlier scenes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but recently, I think it's most going to take. Well, you've got like Gone Girl, uh, Brick. Is Brick a neo noir? Is that something else? The brick is definitely a neo noir. Yeah, I love that. You know, the taking the neo noir to high school. It's fucking awesome. <laughs> yes, but it's it's weirdly, it feels outside of it because it's like it's a direct subversion of noir rather than being part of this neo noir thing, which is still very urban. I don't know. Like I don't think saying. it is. It's it's just relocating neo noir word for word but just putting it into high school and changing a few words here and there but i guess that's that's what i mean like it's still using like 40s style dialogue yes um where they in like michael mann films they talk like it's the time they do they use the jargon of the place yeah um so it's yeah maybe breaks a whole other topic I mean, yeah, it's, it's subverting it by changing the mise-en-scene and the location. And that's where it's kind of moving around that. Uh, yeah, so TV is kind of where it's where it's at now. Uh-huh. Um, I feel like every big show that comes around is like a noir in some sense. Like you, your Fargo's, Breaking Bad, and stuff like Top of the Lake, uh, directed by Jane Campion and True Detective. Um these shows, it's like they, they're definitely the ones that get a stronger, like, authorial voice. Part of my issue with TV sometimes is it doesn't feel like it's authored. It feels like it's just being produced by no one in particular. Mm-hmm. But these shows all use cinematic. They all use cinema, don't they? They're, like, being a noir. And mm-hmm. that kind of has given them some prestige. Yeah, maybe that's why there is the lack of near noir in cinema is because it's found its place in TV. I think so. Like, I think that's why the Nicole Kidman character is so impressive in Destroyer is because you do get characters on that kind of realm for women 
in TV, but not that many in movies anymore. The the Sight and Sound article just make, talks a lot about um, women in, in noir and how that's kind of evolved over time and has found it, have found a home in, in TV. Yeah, it talks about um, Helen Mirren in, in um, Prime Suspect, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Show. I've, ne- I've never seen that show, but that is, feels like a big staple of the genre. I don't know. I feel like I have a sticking point. So you said earlier that these TV shows have these these noir influences and that kind of lends to their prestige but I think too many shows are cottoning onto that and doing that just for a kind of cheap cinema connection because so many shows like they'll have their episode titles are just are just titles of famous movies do you want to talk about Riverdale <laughs> I do I think Riverdale's a great example of it though I kind of love that but maybe that's kind of feeding into the into my, Riverdale uh, is like so ironic about it that yeah. it sort of gets away with it for a bit and then... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of cool. It's got this kind of fast food, pop culture fascination and aesthetic and it's so vividly doing it. Um, I I did quite like that the, the central mystery of the first season was a dead or missing young man rather than a young girl. So that kind of worked yes. for me. It spun Twin Peaks, except Yes, yeah. yeah. I, I feel like actually there's probably a big crossover with people that like Riverdale and people that enjoy Under Silver Lake. Because mm-hmm. they're both kind of wearing their heart on their sleeve in that respect. Yes. And just throwing references for the sake of it, almost as like bragging rights. Yeah. And I think that can be super grating, but I, I don't know, it kind of worked for me in Under the Silver Lake. Yes. It works, yeah. It, I mean, yeah, the... Like I said, when I, when I watched Silver Lake in the cinema, I was like, bold. I just fucking went with it, like, the whole time. Mm-hmm. And watching it at home, maybe, that's just a bit, I don't know, it was like 10 in the morning, maybe that's not the time to watch Silver Lake. Maybe it <laughs> is more of a midnight kind of joint. Yeah. Can we talk about this Steve Rose article? Yes. Rogues, Rogues Gallery, Death Row, inmate Steve Rose. What's he done this time? You pointed me in the direction of his uh, little Silver Lake article. I feel like when there's a when there's a movie out, Rose will just you know throw you a little uh, soup song, a little idea. Hey, maybe you should look at it from this angle. Yes. And change yeah. the game. This time, for Silver Lake, he said he's got the difficult second album syndrome. Why auteurs struggle to follow their debut. And a big picture of Under Silver Lake. Oh, my first pe- problem with this is that uh, It Follows is not the first, the debut of, of David Robert Mitchell. It's his second film. So that was the difficult second album. It was just his breakthrough film. Yep, yep. And so actually it's the difficult third album, if you want to call it that. Yeah. Um, and then throughout this article... Rose continually kind of just picks films that didn't do as well as the first bigger film. So he, he talks about Duncan Jones. Duncan Jones went from Moon and Source Code to the fans only Warcraft. It just seems like such a bizarre um, example, not just because Warcraft's the third movie, but because Source Code wasn't exactly like a barnstormer, was it? It just seemed like a very strange article when its only real idea was to connect... <laughs> was to connect Richard Kelly and and 
um, under Silver Lake. Well, Richard Kelly does suffer from sophomore fatigue or whatever you want to call it. Yes, there are some strange examples in this movie, which is probably the most egregious thing wrong with this theory. He says uh, The Fountain was the second album follow-up to Requiem for a Dream. Uh, I Heart Huckabees was the follow-up to Three Kings. Bizarre. And, yes, and I, I think it's it's it kind of undermines this point to to call these films second albums when they're often not. They're just following up the a successful film. Um the but only even... second time director he mentions here is Richard Kelly. Yeah. Vincent Gallo exists. <laughs> He's a sufferer from sophomore syndrome. Yes. But yeah, do you think that's a useful framework to look at under the Silver Lake? Uh, in as much as the idea that it's just this bloated mess. Yes. So so his theory is that the, the second film, or the, the film following a successful breakthrough the filmmaker's given too much of a budget and they they deliver something that's overstuffed, bloated and juvenile. Um, do you think that's a useful way to think about Under the Silver Lake? Uh, yeah, pro- yeah in, a, in, a, in a sense it is. But I just, I think it's a um, phenomenon, a regular phenomenon in cinema. Um, you look at like... Francis Ford Coppola's career, which kind of seems to be like a progression of these kind of movies where each one is more overstuffed than the last. Mm -hmm. Um, Or um, Heaven's Gate and stuff like that. These are all well-documented, you know, disaster pieces or whatever you want to call them. Mm -hmm. So I I would put Under Silver Lake in that kind of realm. It's It's a Popeye or a... Um, even like a Jackie Brown or something. I don't know. I feel like that's kind of dismissive. And I feel like filmmakers should have the freedom to do something strange um, With after their breakthrough. You know, after their breakthrough, they've got the cachet and they've got the, the bigger budget this time to do something a little little weird and what people what drew people to them initially was their their what was unique about them so the fact that they have the freedom to do something so strange should be celebrated exactly like how easy would it have been for david robert mitchell to just take twice the budget and do a superhero film yeah um like, imagine if all of the directors that were making marvel movies were given the budget to make an under silver lake we'd have some mm-hmm. very strange films yes I mean, even then, Under the Silver Lake's budget isn't that big. It says it's eight million. Eight million. That yeah. movie looks like fifty million. <laughs> um, what a great director! Yeah. I think you could even put something like um, Ava DuVernay film from last year. What was that called now? The Wrinkle. Uh, a Wrinkle in Time. Yeah, maybe that's the same kind of thing. Right? Mm-hmm. It's like it's reaching and it doesn't really get everything, but it's doing exactly what she wants to do. And people just kind of wrote it off for being obtuse or whatever. Yeah. I think we talked about this in the Razzies episode. A lot of the films that get awarded are, well, maybe half the films that get awarded are big budget, personal things from auteurs that people don't really get. Um, but then they're slowly embraced over time. I'm thinking of something like Ishtar or um, definitely Luke, 
warm reception to big budget personal auteur pieces is kind of the thing we should be be hoping for. People complain about getting the same thing all the time. They get something different and they treat it with with, with not a lot of respect. Yeah, they don't like get no respect, Lake. no respect at all. And I think that's part of that is why I think I'll cherish Under Silver Lake. Because mm-hmm. it's like, yeah, this is like a fucking indulgence. But it's the kind of movie that I just, I wish that was like, I wish that was the worst film of the year. There's a great scene in Under the Silver Lake where they're finding and talking about finding a message in like a cereal box. And it reminded me of the scene in uh, M. Night Shyamalan's Lady in the Water, where they also read messages from from cereal boxes. Um, And I quite like that as a recurring idea. Again, it's part of this, like, all the messages are in, like, physical things. Mm -hmm. Nothing's online. (laughs) Yes, it's important. Everything you need is, like, out there in front of you. It's Uh tactile in some way. Yes. And deceptively sort of specific man that's written everything. One of the reasons people, these movies, these contemporary neo-noirs are being received so in such a polarising way is because they struggle to make their protagonists good anti-heroes. They're trying to make them unlikable. They're trying to prove that they're flawed by giving them these, these sort of violent or ugly personalities or, or worldviews. But people aren't getting on board with that. Like, there's a review I read of Under the Silver Lake that that thinks that Andrew Garfield's character's display of violence is really unnecessary, and people don't like his his misogyny, and people find it hard to engage with with Nicole Kidman's such a grizzled cop. But I think that maybe that's a failure of the film to to make that that unlikability. You could still get past that and understand that character and empathize with them. I think there's a lot in that, you know, like on, on TV, that is a thing that's celebrated. Mm-hmm. But the TV style will always make these people like cool. They always make them an anti-hero, but like you got to love them. You've got to like, you know, they're like still something that you can put on the front of your posters and adverts and stuff, mm-hmm. um, which leads to the kind of glorification of characters like Walter White in Breaking Bad where there's all these gifable moments from this like awful character. Um, okay. You don't always have to work to love the really bad people on TV. Okay. But, but they might be worse people, but the the show will always look at them in a certain way that's like... I, I don't know. I, le- no, it's I less, know what you're saying. A lot of the time it's less sophisticated. I've been re-watching Deadwood... Um, and the main character in that, or one of the central figures, Al Swearingen, who is like a like brothel owner, multiple murderer, runs this crime syndicate, um, and yet is a very likable character. But it slowly makes you like him or humanizes mm-hmm. him, mm-hmm. and maybe that's shows like Narcos try and do that as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's, it's every show, isn't it? There's the Jason Bateman Ozark one. It's, you know, mm-hmm. it's it's again, it's just like that's where these stories are happening. It's on TV. I mean, that makes it almost sound kind of less self-aware. Like these under the Silver Lake and Destroyer aren't going out of their way to make these characters cool. 
and maybe that's the tension where they want to show that they are criticizing them without making them too cool because that would be endorsing them yes. and then how do you balance that tension to make them kind of cool but not too cool yeah I, I think that goes back to why people think Silver Lake feels like a, an old script that's been updated because it part of it is like a thing of like oh that's the kind of person that I was mm-hmm. maybe that a 45 year old um, or however old Robert Mitchell is he's 44 well done. I was close. I got that. Yep. I got that forty-five feeling from. Um, <laughs> do you think? Do you think that's what that is? Where he's like too affectionate for his old self to really criticize it, but he knows that he's, he knows it's a piece of shit, but he still loves it. Maybe. I don't think he is very cool though. But maybe I'm. I'm. I can pick that out from that. Or that's my take on him. In that he's kind of he is this loser. He fucking smiles bad. Well, it's the problem of having. Andrew Garfield play the role, I think. Yes, I did think he's too good looking. We need a fucking schlubby loser in this role, but then he'd still be getting laid all the time. So that would would it, that be even worse? That would be that would be way worse because like you can go, well, he's still Andrew Garfield. Yeah. But it's part of what just makes this film incoherent because you're just like, he's he's awful, but you just yes. like him because Andrew Garfield is really winning in it. I think he's it's a great performance. His physical presence is great mm-hmm. he kind of flops about he's very you could watch him on silent and I think he'd still do great stuff <laughs> yes I kind of struggled with him a bit more but I think it was also like first time watching it I just wanted it to be a little bit funnier and I wanted him to be a little more engaging I found him sort of more sleepy than, than stoned but uh, I guess that's a part of it but you couldn't have say a Paul Giamatti type doing that role no. I know that's probably too old, but um, I don't know. A TJ Miller, say. <laughs> God, no, that would be hard to watch. Right? Because you could see that that's kind of what the role is written as. Yeah. I mean, I do like TJ Miller, but yeah, if he's like this sort of average looking schlub. God, yeah. So it's a weird, tricky balancing act. And I guess it only works for a few people. Yeah, it's, I don't know, Let's, we can't fix Under Silver Lake. It doesn't need fixing. It doesn't need fixing, exactly. <laughs> how do you feel about it? You've been very critical of it, but it seems like you love it. What? How, how do you feel about this movie? I just think there's so much going on that I can't, it's like I say, you know, I, I just appreciate, like, someone that's going for it. I appreciate that it's a vision that's, like, untarnished. Um, and now you've told me that it's, cost eight million that is like just like wow mm. i think there's so much wrong with it but i think these are all like um they're like problems of authorship you know like you can it's it's still it's stuff to talk about rather than like technical incompetence it's a yes. kind of yeah cool yeah that's how i feel about that what, how do you how do you feel about it you're like you're, you're like, I'm kind of work, trying to, can't work out how you feel about it. <laughs> and I think maybe that's the, the trick of the movie. Yeah, I, I did like it. Um, I did like it. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed living in that world again. Not again, sorry. I could live in it again. Like, I could watch it again because I just want to spend time in that space um, with cereal boxes and zines and 
yeah. character actors from Mulholland Drive, you know. Is this kind of, <laughs> is this playful? I'd go back to it before I go back to Destroyer, even though oh, Destroyer's yeah. a film I'd recommend, like, without reservation to people. Okay. Just, to, like, if someone wants a thriller, I'd be like, that. that is heady and, like, really well done. Mm-hmm. Where Under Silver Lake might be with some reservations, like, neo-noir in cinema, uh, thriving, is there? It seems like there is something going on. Mm-hmm. It seems, maybe it just doesn't go away, and it's only when these kind of very self-conscious ones, your inherent vices and your silver lakes show up, that people start talking about it again as a. I think it is in a bit of a lull. I mean, clearly these films are, yeah. There's a bunch coming out at the moment, and I don't know. It's just not. It just doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel the right time for it. But what about something like Burning? Mm-hmm. Um, is that a neo-noir? Um, I don't think so. I think that's more of a Hitchcock thing. And if you start calling Hitchcock yes. noir, then you're getting into a messy place <laughs> in terms of definitions. But that's that's the thing with noir. It's very messy, isn't it? Yes. In terms of saying what it really is. It comes with the territory. Mm. So... I guess we're both letting Under Silver Lake go free and find its audience. Yeah. I think it's the kind of movie that people might, not everyone will love it, but you might find that you unexpectedly love it. And yes. it's on movie streaming for free for the next 30 days. So Yeah. Yeah, go, and, go into it with an open mind and it might might surprise you. And it's it's there. You can watch it. It's on Movie Go. You can see it in the cinema for free. If mm-hmm. it's shown near you, I don't know what kind of release this has got. I'm trying to see if I can make a a connection between like, you can see it. Is it there? Or maybe it's not there. There is no movie. Yeah. There's nothing. I can't do Garfield in the cereal box. It's not actually a message in the in the movie. See that cereal box scene was one of the ones <laughs> that I had a problem with to go back to because that's a time where he's. So you've just had a scene where he's been sprayed by a skunk. Am I right in the chronology of this? He's been sprayed by a skunk. Um, and then he's, he's sitting in the bath and he goes, oh yeah, um, I record every single time on Wheel of Fortune or whatever that so-and-so blinks. Um, yeah. And then it goes from that to him visiting your man from Mulholland Drive. Um, mm-hmm. And you're then supposed to be on Garfield's side being like well this is the crazy guy but it's like mm-hmm. you just had a scene of Andrew Garfield revealing himself to be a complete head case as well so it kind of it can't like decide what it wants that's yeah I've, we've said it, it already it can't decide what it wants you to think about it I think it, it wants you to feel both things it wants you to think he's fucking crazy and then he thinks other people are crazy because it's just it's just constantly putting you on the wrong foot yeah, no, but it's just like, it just seems kind of, I don't know, there's something something that doesn't sit right in that, in that scene where he's like sneering at, um, but maybe that is the character again, you know, he's sneering at him while he's totally buying into all of his stuff about the owl lady and everything mm-hmm. else. It's, I don't know. And I guess he does end up using a map to find mm-hmm. it. I Fucking movie. <laughs> I'm gonna watch it. I'm gonna watch it again. 
Do it. You'll you'll hate it the second time. <laughs> oh, that's a shame. I guess that's that's the movie, isn't it? That's the movie, and then you'll and then there'll be a third time to watch it, and then you're like you come to your peace with it, and you go, it's great. Yeah. Um, is it time for you to introduce the bad take of the week? I believe it is. Yes. Um, so. I'm calling to the stand Mike Lee um, for Death Row Take of the Week. What? Uh, Mike Lee? Mike Lee. One of the greatest living British directors? I'm afraid so. He said some things and we need to talk about why this take is so bad. Um, so this comes from The Observer saying that the Mike Lee is warning us that the new breed of studio executives behave like old-style Hollywood moguls. He's referring to Netflix, Hulu and Amazon. Uh are very powerful and they're putting all these restrictions on young filmmakers that's stifling their creativity much like the hollywood studio system of the the classical hollywood 30s 40s 50s right um and i think this is a bad take because it plays into the myth that the hollywood studio system stifles creativity but the way the studio system worked was that they they would remix elements and pair collaborators and repair stars and directors. They 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 they'd mix up their filmmakers to create new collaborations, to create new kinds of work and see what worked and what didn't. You know, they'd put um Joan Crawford in a in a screwball comedy with one actor and then they put her in a noir with another actor and another different director and they keep reworking these elements to see what worked and what didn't and it was it's it's systematic but it's it's kind of a creative system I think yeah and um, it did create a production line of a lot of great cinema yes yeah, there's we, people love those movies. People look up to them. People talk about how they're so beautiful and influential. And there's just so much to dive into. Um, and so... it's like anything, isn't it? Like the 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 real greats rise to the top because they push their 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 own style through that system to create something else. Yes, I think it, it's a system that does breed creativity. Um, and and yeah, the the greats will rise to the top. Um, so I don't like his leaning into that myth. And another thing is that he, the restrictions he talks about are how they, so they suggest a director works with a particular team or ask why you are not using a female cinematographer. Um, and a lot of things he's referring to that they're, that these, these, these executives ask for a diversity in casting and, and filmmaking. Yes. He mentions this like quite a few times in this, this piece. And I feel like, that's maybe not really a bad thing if your boss is asking you to be a bit more diverse in your in your in who you're hiring. Like I think that is probably a, a good thing, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the fact that he's complaining about that I think says more about how he is opposed to that idea, which I think in the long run is not a good attitude to have. I think, you know, if their prerogative is is affirmative action, I think that should be encouraged. Yeah, it's weird that like lazy attitude of like, oh, um, well, it's it's not who I want to work with, or like I'm being forced to work with these people for, um, yeah, who, who's best for the job? That kind of idea. It's just like nonsense, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, and also, he then says 
he, I'm not talking about my own experience with Amazon who backed Peterloo and behave impeccably. The problem just exists for younger filmmakers. But he doesn't have a single example of that. He's just talking about some nonsense, isn't he? It's just a myth. It's like... Yes, I think it is. It, it's not a very well-researched or founded sort of claim because, yeah, it's, it's not reflective of his experience and he hasn't got examples, as you say. So, yeah, it's, it's so not really... Sharp. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I don't know. I'm just like... He's just made the single most boring film of his career by being allowed to work with whoever he wants and given total carte blanche by <laughs> Amazon. So maybe... Yeah, maybe some different perspectives might liven that up a bit. Yes, good point. Yeah. I don't know. And then he starts being like, oh, well, actually, I predicted Brexit with Peter Lou, and you're like, shut up. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a weird piece. Um, you could read it. I mean, maybe the real the real crime is uh, d- designing a clickbait headline out of a unfounded claim. But uh, yes. Uh, it's a funny one. Yeah, it's a weird. No, it's just again like older directors like chatting shit. Basically, yes. Just really not wanting to like let go of the world that they uh, they know. Yes. Oh, I found another quote. Um, yeah, it's kind of very contradictory. He says, historically and socially, it is absolutely the right thing. I only have a problem if it becomes overprescriptive and starts to inhibit natural organic work. Then it is dangerous. Yes. Like like everybody else, I am listening, but I do not want to be dictated to about casting. Um, it's like, all right. <laughs> yes, like, Oof. yeah, maybe you do need to... There should be a challenging culture where... Maybe people should think about maybe they they should have some more women in their movies or people of color. We're gonna keep finding these takes. <laughs> um, it's it's but again it's a hard one when it's like how much has that been taken out of context of the conversation? Yes. Is that a Kosh style? Sorry, a Liam Neeson style moment. Possibly, yeah. I mean, why didn't they make that the headline? Probably because it would have been a bit unnecessary. Yeah. Let's get out of here. <laughs> yes, if you have any more takes that annoy you and you want us to, to take down, Please let us know. Yes. Let us know. We need a bank of bad takes. You can do that by getting in touch at Judge Movie Pod on Instagram and Twitter. That's right. You can also uh, email us at judgemoviepodcast at gmail.com. Um, and if you want to have a look at our show notes, links to the to the films, to the takes on death row, uh, you can go to word... Uh, sorry, I'll say that again. Um, if you want to find links to... If you want to find our show notes with links to the, the takes on death row, um, you can find that at judgemoviepod.wordpress.com. And please do not forget to rate, review, and subscribe on your favourite pod tracker. Is that what it's called, a pod tracker? Um, on I've heard it as podcatcher. Podcatcher? All right. Well, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on one of them. Yeah. Podcatcher. Have fun. <laughs>